John chapter 3, our text this evening will be verses 9 through 21. Hear God's word as it comes from the Gospel of John chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. People tend to think that salvation is no big deal. Some think we don't need it at all on the basis of the thinking that we are good people who deserve God's blessings. Others along this vein don't believe there's really any kind of judgment for sin that's coming, so there's nothing to be saved from. Another group of people would agree that we are sinners and deserve judgment, but believe that the sin problem can rather easily be solved by just trying your best to do good works. What is not understood by many because they are in spiritual darkness is that salvation requires the love of God sending his son to die on the cross for sinners. Nicodemus belonged to that group of people who saw Jesus perform miracles and were drawn to him. They believed in his name, scripture tells us, which sounds like faith, but we are told that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Jesus knew what was in their hearts and therefore knew what they actually thought of him. They believed him to be a teacher come from God. They agreed that God was with him to be able, for him to be able to do the signs that he did, but they did not have saving faith in him, the kind of faith that trusts in him as the son of God to give spiritual life uh, and uh, the spiritual life of a new heart. It's one thing to believe that by following Jesus' example, you can earn your own way to heaven. It sounds like faith for a person to say that he's looking to Jesus and following Jesus' example as a disciple, but it's not faith if Jesus is only your example for a works-based righteousness. It's quite another thing in the way of real faith to believe that you are spiritually dead and in the need of a new birth that only the Holy Spirit of God can give you. Faith in Jesus requires knowing that you are a sinner in need of saving, and that you cannot save yourself, and then trusting in him as your atoning sacrifice for sin. 
Nicodemus didn't realize that salvation requires this radical spiritual transformation that involves the heart. This could only leave him thinking that salvation is a matter of cleaning up one's life outwardly with good works, which certainly fits with his uh, credentials as a Pharisee. There continue to be so-called Christian leaders who teach salvation by works, even though the Bible is very clear that no one is justified by works. And further evidence of Nicodemus's lack of real saving faith is found in verse 9 in his question to Jesus, how can these things be? The, this new birth that Jesus has just described sounds impossible as far as Nicodemus is concerned. Verse 4 indicates Nicodemus is thinking only in physical terms. Notice verse 4, he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he thinks that by being born again, Jesus is talking about entering a second time into his mother's womb and then being born. Jesus then explains that the new birth is a spiritual transformation. It's a rebirth of the heart. It's then that Nicodemus questions how such things are even possible. Jesus rebukes Nicodemus by telling him he should have understood these things. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. The we there is probably Jesus and John the Baptist, perhaps Jesus and his father, perhaps Jesus and his disciples. But regardless, what they have spoken of and bear witness about is something they have seen firsthand and they know it is a reality. And Jesus seems to be directly challenging the knowledge, the claim of knowledge that that Nicodemus gave in verse 2 when he tells Jesus, we know who you are. We know. But in reality, Nicodemus and the people in his circles don't know who Jesus is. Jesus is talking about spiritual change, which is something that he knows. He knows it's important, it's needed in salvation, absolutely necessary in salvation, and Nicodemus does not accept what Jesus says about this need. He says, you do not receive our testimony. Now, Nicodemus, no doubt, as a spiritual leader in Israel, had taught people for years about what he believed was required for entrance into the kingdom of God. He apparently had told people of the need to keep God's commandments and to live lives of devotion and submission to God. For in all of this time, think of it, the spiritual leader of Israel, he has not heard about the need of a new birth from above. And that Jesus rebukes Nicodemus as he does proves that what Jesus is saying about this need for heart change is something that was clearly taught in the Old Testament. Nicodemus had the scriptures, and he should not have been surprised at all by what Jesus was saying. Worse yet was his resistance to it. And Jesus rebukes Nicodemus further by continuing to point out his lack of spiritual understanding. Verse 12, he says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The intended meaning of this contrast is not immediately clear. It's elicited a lot of discussion among commentators. What makes sense to me is to think of these earthly things as, first of all, the use that the the Lord makes of the physical realm as he gives a spiritual lesson. It's almost like the Lord is using here a parable. And so when the Lord wants to speak about the need to become spiritually clean and even to the degree of having a new heart put in you, he uses this word connected with giving birth to children. 
Jesus is talking about a radical change of heart that involves becoming a new person spiritually. The New Testament refers to a washing of regeneration or a washing of rebirth, even a washing of new birth and renewal. That would be Titus 3.5. Paul refers to our being new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, Nicodemus, as an Old Testament teacher, would not have been familiar with those exact words, but he should have figured out what Jesus was talking about, especially as Jesus explained further. At first, what Jesus meant by being born again completely went over Nicodemus's head, as his response makes clear in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus grasped nothing of the spiritual in what Uh, Jesus said about being born again. And so then Jesus explained further, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Be born of water and the Spirit would be language talking about becoming a new person, a spiritual person who is cleansed of sin and able to live an obedient life pleasing to God. Jesus explained even further, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so Jesus is talking about becoming a new person in your heart that can never happen except through the Holy Spirit. This is a work of the spirit that is mysterious, it is sovereign, it is unpredictable. Jesus says it's analogous to wind. But despite all of this explanation, Nicodemus finds it impossible Jesus has worked at explaining the new birth in a very clear and careful way. He's used earthly human analogies, yet nothing got through. And if Nicodemus cannot understand these basic spiritual realities explained in earthly terms, then how in the world is he going to understand the heavenly things that Jesus might talk about without the use of parables? Another angle is to understand the earthly things as spiritual things that take place in this life, things that should be self-evident, while the heavenly things, in contrast, would be the spiritual realities that belong to the kingdom to come and things that, the, that, that no finite human mind could ever come up with. So we might say it's an earthly thing, something common to earthly knowledge and intuition to think that human creatures would need to be radically changed in order to have a relationship with God. Has Nicodemus not ever seen people radically changed by the Spirit of God into new people with new desires and new ways of living? Has he not ever witnessed that? No wonder Jesus has reason to doubt Nicodemus' ability to understand the greater heavenly things that involve details regarding God's plan of salvation that no man could ever know on his own, so that these heavenly things are the deeper things that God knows and must be revealed in a special way if man is to know them. Verse 13 explains how it is that Jesus is able to speak authoritatively about these heavenly things. The Greek actually has a conjunction at the beginning there of verse 13 that tells us there's a connection between verse 13 and what has just been said in verse 12. And the idea is that there has been no human being who has ascended into heaven. Not even Jesus had ascended yet. There's been no human being who can tell us about heavenly things. 
Only the Son of Man who has descended from heaven is able to tell us about such things. And this is because Jesus, as to his person, is the Word who was always with God. Before time began, he entered into the council of God by which all things were decreed. Jesus, the Word become flesh, is God, not just was with God, but is God. And uh, in taking on human flesh, he is God come down to us. And he is therefore able to teach us all things that concern God and salvation, the things that no human being could know on his own. At the heart of that plan of salvation is the coming of Jesus, that up until that time, up until then, as part of the Old Testament dispensation, had been revealed through types. Uh, One of these types included the lifting up of the serpent in the wilderness. And that event, Jesus explains, was a picture of the lifting up of the Son of Man. I've taken that as the theme of these verses, and uh, after this rather long introduction, we can focus now upon the what and the why and the result of this lifting up of the Son of Man. Again, with what? If Nicodemus, as a spiritual leader, doesn't understand the desperate nature of man's spiritual depravity that requires a radical change, how is he going to understand the need for faith in a coming Messiah to be saved? The necessity of faith for salvation, in fact, a faith that excludes trust in one's works, is something that no man on his own would ever come up with as the way to be right with God. And yet it is something clearly taught in Scripture And uh, the Lord reminds Nicodemus of this Old Testament type that's recorded in Numbers 21 in order to make this very point. And what, what we learned there in Numbers 21 is that the Israelites had once again become impatient during their wilderness wandering. They spoke against God and against Moses by complaining of a lack of food and drink, although the Lord had faithfully provided water for them. They didn't always have it immediately in front of them, but the Lord again and again provided water miraculously, and uh, they acted as though they had no food, but they had manna. The Lord was actually providing for them. And uh, so these are, these are just really rebellious complaints. And in judgment, the Lord sent venomous serpents among them, and many people died of their bites. People that survived were scared, they were humbled, they confessed their sin, they asked that the Lord would take away the serpents, and the Lord's response was to have Moses make this bronze or or copper serpent and set it on a pole. And the instruction to the people was that if a serpent bites them, they are to look at that bronze serpent and they will live. And this event, Jesus tells Nicodemus, points to him. The parallels are as follows in both cases. First of all, in in both cases, death is the punishment for sin. Second, God in his sovereign grace provides a remedy. And third, the remedy consists of something or someone being lifted up in public view. And for those who look upon that which is lifted up with a believing heart are healed. For the Old Testament people of God, the serpents would have naturally reminded them of the serpent there in the garden which had led to man's fallen state into sin. It would have reminded them of the fact that they deserve judgment and the judgment from which man cannot free himself. And for God to use a bronze serpent as a means of grace was to proclaim to the people of God his sovereignty over the forces of evil. 
And that they were required to look upon the bronze serpent for healing indicates the necessity of faith to experience the healing. On the face of it, to look upon a piece of metal for healing doesn't make sense. The point was that the people of God were to take God at his word. And they were to do something that, humanly speaking, didn't make sense in order to prove that they were believing what he said he would do. And of course, the healing was from God. To look upon the bronze serpent was how to express faith in God's promise to heal. The point then was the necessity of faith. And the same is true of the work of salvation that God has planned through the Messiah. The way to experience his salvation is by faith. While looking to a Messiah doesn't sound like it would save, that is the plan of God. It's one of those heavenly things that the mind of man would never come up with. And that must be revealed to us. Now, Jesus didn't explain to Nicodemus what specific form his lifting up would take. We know that Jesus was lifted up on the cross and that the serpent on the pole was a type of Jesus being crucified on a wooden cross. Later in John chapter 12, in verses 32 and 33, Jesus will say these words, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So this lifting up of the Son of Man is explained in John 3.16 as the purpose of God giving his only Son. The word becoming flesh and dwelling among us was a giving of the Son to us. So why did God give his Son to the world? What was the purpose of the incarnation It was that he might be lifted up. Jesus was given to mankind as our atoning sacrifice for sin. He was given so that he might be lifted up on the cross so that whoever believes in him might be saved. And Jesus' main point in all of this is not to explain to Nicodemus exactly how he would die, but to point out that for man to have eternal life, the Son of Man must be lifted up and that sinners must believe in him. Their eyes of faith must look to that one, lift it up, and in that way receive the healing that God offers. So why? Well, Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up, but why? Why is it important that Jesus be lifted up? The purpose of his being lifted up is that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It is only by Jesus being lifted up and sinners looking to him by faith that any of us fallen sinners can have eternal life. And furthermore, Jesus' coming, his being lifted up, is necessary because we are sinners who cannot save ourselves. Our sin problem is such that we have polluted hearts out of which flow words and deeds that are not pleasing to God. We are therefore by nature not able to offer to God works of righteousness that would earn us eternal life. Verse 16 and following explains further why Jesus had to come and die in order for us to have eternal life. And uh, verse 16 provides, uh, in in a summary form, really the entire gospel message, which is why it is one of the most, if not the most, popular and, and known verses in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Martin Luther, the reformer, said that this verse is the Bible in miniature. And what we learn is that salvation is ultimately grounded in the love of God. 
Jesus was lifted up as a way for believers in him to have eternal life. Why? Why was Jesus lifted up? For God so loved the world. Salvation is not due to our loving God, but rather him loving us. His love is a gracious love, which is confirmed by the fact that this world that he loved is the world of fallen man. It consists of people who, if they do not believe in Jesus, will perish. This makes it clear that the world that God loved is not made up of good people, but of sinners. And this is what makes the love of God such an amazing and necessary thing. For if God had not loved us, we could only expect to perish under God's judgment for our sins. We love because he first loved us. And how this love was manifested was in the giving of his only son. God's only son is the unique. He is the only begotten son of God. The word who was with God and was God and yet chose to dwell among us. And this makes his being given all the more shocking and special For God's giving of his son was a gift to us that involved him in great humiliation and suffering that ultimately culminated in being lifted up to the death of the cross. This is what was needed for our salvation. And the reason why Jesus did it was out of love. We're not saved because of our works or because we are naturally good and lovely and attractive to God. The reason we are saved is because God chose to love us. It's hard to grasp how shocking these words must have been to the Jews who as a whole thought that salvation and God's love was only for them. In the Jewish mind, there was God's people and then there was the world of evil men. And Jesus challenges that thinking on two levels. First of all, people, Jew and Gentile, all people belong to the world. All, therefore, are naturally worthy of condemnation and need the love of God giving them his son if they are to be saved. And second, all people can be potentially saved as long as they look to Jesus Christ with faith. Jesus wasn't given only for the Jews. He was also given for the Gentiles. In other words, the love of God and salvation was not restricted to to one race of people, but was given to the world. Three times in these verses, Jesus says, whoever Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever means not just Jews, people of any race. For God's love and salvation extends to the world. So why must Jesus be lifted up? Because everyone of this world is in need of salvation through Jesus. And Jesus is given not just for Jewish sinners, but also for Gentile sinners throughout the whole world brings us to our third point, which highlights the need for faith and the new birth. And in this way, Jesus brings Nicodemus around to see the whole scope of salvation that is needed and that is provided through Jesus. So the sending of Jesus into the world was not to condemn the world, but in order to save the world. Of course, the purposes of God related to the giving of his son for sinners will take place, which means that The salvation of sinners is the sure result of Jesus' coming. God's determined purpose to save the world helps us to understand what is and what isn't meant by the term the world. What is envisioned in John 3.16 can't possibly be a saving love of God for every human being since not everyone is going to be saved through Jesus. 
This means the world that God loves and saves is not to be thought of as every single person head for head. The world that Jesus saves is the world of elect Jews and Gentiles. And while we know that not everyone will be saved, the language that is used to describe God's saving work here indicates that we can't know who the elect are. And so we don't have the ability or even the right to proclaim to anyone that they are outside the possibility of faith and salvation. But we are to proclaim to all indiscriminately that God so intensely loved the world, even though it has fallen in sin, that he gave his only son. The result is that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever you are, whatever sin you've committed, you believe in Jesus, you will not be condemned. Condemned is the opposite of saved. To be condemned means to be under the wrath of God, and that's the state that we are all naturally in and will remain in unless we believe in the name of the only Son of God. The only way to escape this condemnation that we all deserve is to look to Jesus in faith. What this means is that Jesus coming into the world and the presentation the sinners of who he is, is a shining of the life and light of truth into this dark world. And what it does is judge all who are exposed to it. For those who reject Christ, it is evident that they love the darkness and hate the light. We're told they do not come to the light because their works are evil and they don't want their works exposed which means they don't want to admit that they are sinners. They don't want to admit that they deserve condemnation. And if they were to go to Jesus and look upon him in faith, that would be to admit that they are sinners in need of saving. That would be to admit that they can't earn their own righteousness. Meanwhile, believers, those who receive Christ in faith, we are told are those who do what is true and come to the light. This doing or practicing of what is true refers to the practice of a genuine faith that includes believing in Jesus, but also living in a way that pleases him, but out of gratitude, flowing out of faith. And what is key to this entire section is the wording with which it ends. Notice what it says of this believer who does what is true and comes to the light. We are told why he comes to the light, so that in order that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The true child of God knows that any good that he does is because of God's work in him. Any works that you do that are truly good can only be so because God has cleansed your hearts. Any faith that you exercise toward Christ can only be because God has changed your heart to understand your need for Christ. To reject Christ, and to remain in a state of condemnation, we don't need to do anything. That's how we naturally are. To love darkness and hate the light because we are unable to do any truly good works is how we naturally are. To be those who perish in our sins because we refuse to look upon Christ in faith is how we will be without a supernatural intervention from God. To not even care about the love of God for sinners and this giving of his son for our salvation is the natural response of fallen man. Praise be to God for the works that God enables us to carry out, works that are born out of genuine faith, and a genuine faith that's born out of a new birth. See, it all begins with the heart. 
Without a new heart, there would, be new, there would be no faith in Christ. And we can't give ourselves a new heart. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. To be transformed spiritually in the heart requires a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. What John already said back in chapter 1 is being confirmed. Remember what he said back in chapter 1, beginning at verse 9? He says, there the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Become a child of God is not a matter of something that flesh and blood can do. God alone can make us his own. We must be born of God, born of water and the Spirit, born again, born from above. And unless we are born again, we cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. To see and to enter the kingdom of God is the same thing as having eternal life. And we are told this evening that that requires believing in Christ. Which means that entering the kingdom of God requires faith as well as being born again. So in the end, everything comes together when we realize that any works that we do of coming to the light and living out of the light are carried out in God. God must change our hearts. God must give us faith, all of which points to our need for God's grace in his son, Jesus. Are you a child of God? You have eternal life. Have you seen and entered the kingdom of God? answer these questions requires the right answer to another question. Well, have you been born again? And perhaps you wonder, well, how would I know? How can we know if we've been born again? Well, do you know that you need a new heart in order to be right with God? Because evidence um, of a new heart is knowing you need one. Evidence of a new heart is knowing that what God requires is more than external deeds of righteousness. He wants all of us, he wants all of you, soul and body, living in submission and devotion to him. But more than that, the main evidence of the new birth is faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe in the Son of Man who was lifted up on the cross as he died for sinners? And do you stand in awe of the love of God that he would send his Son to die for you, that you might not be condemned, but have eternal life? Do you know what it is to no longer be afraid to have your deeds exposed? If you are trusting in Christ, you are no longer condemned. You are justified in the sight of God, which means that even though you have sinned and continue to sin, God no longer holds your sins against you. And so there is no fear. You see, if you understand that, if you have that status with God, there's no fear in having your deeds, even though they are imperfect yet in this life, there's no fear of having them exposed. There's no fear because your status with God doesn't depend on your works. It depends on the atoning death of Jesus. And furthermore, you know that your works flow out of a changed heart because you genuinely want to please God. Your works reflect a genuine love for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in the end, the need for both sanctification and justification have been presented to Nicodemus. It's not enough to have your sins forgiven and to have Christ's righteousness imputed to you by faith. 
There must be an actual sanctifying change of your nature that begins with regeneration, begins with this new birth, that then continues with the process of the Holy Spirit making you more and more like Christ. For we must be holy even as God is holy. These words came as a call of faith to Nicodemus. They come as a call of faith to you. Have you looked to Christ for eternal life? In last week's sermon, it was said that being born again is something that is never commanded. It's not something that we can do for ourselves, though it is necessary for salvation. But that doesn't mean that you and I are to do nothing and to wait for God to act. We are called to believe in Jesus for the pardon of our sins. You are called to respond to the truth and come to Jesus, who has the life that is the light of men. Is the light of the gospel shining in your heart and producing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, this is because Jesus has given you new life. His spirit has infused life into your heart, enabling you to do what is true and to come to the light. And it's by God's grace that this very invitation, this very proclamation of the truth is something that God uses to convert sinners. It appears that Nicodemus didn't believe upon Jesus in a saving way when Jesus first talked with him. But we know that in time, Nicodemus did come to believe. He will later stand up for Jesus against the religious leaders. And he will, after Jesus' death, join Joseph of Arimathea in preparing Jesus' body for burial. Let us be encouraged by the life of Nicodemus. He's an example of someone who didn't understand how to be saved. He didn't, he, he didn't know the first things that were really involved in becoming a child of God, but by God's grace came to understand the truth of salvation as God's work. And that our calling is simply to rest in the salvation that God has provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to understand what it was to look upon that one who was lifted up on the cross came to understand that whoever believes has eternal life. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the new birth. We thank you, Father, for that very beginning of salvation that you have granted to your people, that you continue to grant through the ages that without we would not see or enter the kingdom of God. And Father, we thank you that as a fruit of this new birth, You grant to us faith to look upon the one who has been lifted up, the Lord Jesus, as he died there upon the cross, suffering for our sins, atoning for our sins as our sin sacrifice. Father, we pray that each one here will know what it is to look upon Christ in faith. Each one here will have the assurance that indeed he has experienced the new birth because of his recognized need for Christ and his recognized need for radical spiritual change that you alone can give. Father, help us to very clearly understand that there is no salvation if we are trusting in ourselves, but there is full salvation in believing upon your Son. Father, we thank you for what Christ has accomplished. We thank you that even though we are fallen sinners in Adam, deserving condemnation, Yet you so loved us that you gave your son, 
enabling us to believe upon him to have eternal life. Father, we thank you. May we never lose sight of the grace that you've extended to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.